Well, again, I want to welcome everyone, especially visitors. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a series called Not a Fan. We're not a fan. And uh, you might see some bracelets running around the place on people's wrists that say, I'm not a fan. And once again, it's been a great week. I have people ask me, what does that mean? You're not a fan of what? I saw somebody's Facebook they, that they put a not a fan on, and they said, not a fan of what? Now, I don't remember whose it was, but I couldn't keep my mouth shut, so I made a comment for you in case you didn't. I think it was Leah. Was it you, Leah? Did you straighten me out if I made any mistakes? <laughs> not a fan. Jesus did not call us to be fans. He called us to be followers. In the first, first uh, episode that we went through in this series, we decided and we defined a fan as simply an enthusiastic admirer. Enthusiastic admirer. We can be a fan of everything. We can be a fan of our sports teams, which many of us are. We can be a fan of an individual, a book, an author. Shoot, we can be a fan of my bed. I love my select comfort bed. But Jesus didn't call us to just be fans. He called us to much greater levels and depths of commitment to be followers, people who are completely committed to Jesus. And in the second session or the second of the part of this series, we, we looked at a scripture that we're going to be looking at again today in Luke 9.23, but the, we talked about... Um, it's an open invitation. Anyone who wishes, anyone who wants to, everyone. Not only does it open the door wide open to anyone and everyone, it gets rid of all those excuses that people might have that somehow they're not included in that anyone. But we also looked at that verse and said it also requires not, not just anyone and not just everyone, but it also included everything. That we're called to be followers and be willing to give up everything. Whatever he asks of us. And it'll be different for each one of us. And that's what we want to always be careful of, that we're not looking at other people, judging other people, saying, gee, look at them, they've done this, got that. It's not about that. It's what God speaks to each of our hearts as individuals. What does He want us to do? What does He want you to do, me to do? He's called us. It's open to anyone. And then last week, we talked about intimacy. Intimacy. And one of the contrasts that I made last week was the difference between knowledge and knowing about Jesus, and intimacy, knowing Jesus. He doesn't want us to just get stuck in gathering information. You know, and we talked about how as churches we're good at, good at pretty good anyway, of Bible studies and Sunday school, and we hope the teaching and the, the Sunday morning service, all that, and it's all great. But if it's just about knowledge, we're falling way short Knowledge is a good thing, but it's to lead us to even greater and greater intimacy because that's the better thing. He wants that relationship with us. And we talked about how it's scary for a lot of us because we've been hurt. We've been betrayed by other people. Intimacy requires a level of vulnerability, doesn't it? Transparency. Kind of a here I am. I hope you love me anyway thing. And that's what it is with God. He loves us. He just flat out loves us. It doesn't matter. You can list all the things you've done wrong and, and they don't all please him by any means, but he still loves us. And that's how we want to know him. He knows us intimately whether we realize it or not, right? We might think we're hiding something from him, but it isn't working. And eventually it will be revealed. But he knows everything about us and still loves us. And that's why he wants us to know all that there is. He wants to reveal his heart. Remember some of the scriptures last week? He chose us to know him. Another one says, he gave us a heart to know him. And he wants it in the worst way. 
Today's uh, title of this fourth series, or part four of this series, is simply The Comfortable Cross. I was blessed as we were singing those songs about knowing Him and intimacy and the cross. The Comfortable Cross. Let me ask you some questions. We'll give you a quiz. I think you can all ace this quiz, okay? Which would you prefer? Sleeping on a sleeping bag outdoors or a wonderfully comfortable posturepedic mattress? That's number one. Number two, see if you can get this one right. Which would you rather wear, your favorite jeans and sweatshirts and tennis shoes or a formal suit or formal gown with high spike heels? That's number two. Number three, which would you prefer? We tear all these chairs out of here and come back with some great wooden pews. Cushion chairs, wooden pews. Okay, how'd you do on those? Now, some of you are just going to be stubborn and obstinate and try to mess with this. But what is the, what is the, the, the common denominator in those choices? Comfort. Comfort. We are a comfort culture. Man, look at all the things that are out there, that are marketed to our comfort. Now, you can go out and buy a $75,000 automobile, or you can buy my van for almost nothing. (laughs) And as of right now, they would both take you where you want to go. I guarantee you won't be quite as comfortable in mine. It's a little like the proverbial lumber wagon going down the road. The radio still works most of the time. But people will spend 75 or more for comfort. Our homes, look at our homes, all of our homes in this country. Look at the things that are for comfort. Watch the commercials on TV. It's about comfort, comfort, comfort. Man, can you make a lot of money if you got something? I mean, who'd have ever thought of, what do they call that thing? It's a blanket that's like a sock, a Snuggie thing? Is this called a Snuggie? I mean, somebody made a fortune by taking a blanket and sewing it together and marketing it for our comfort. We are a culture that loves comfort. It's begun to consume many of us, and if we're not careful, it can be a dangerous place to go. Because this desire for comfort begins to, to follow, our faith begins to follow this concept. Of comfort. I want a comfortable faith. We've talked about that, and it's not a fan series. You know, I, want to, I want my faith to be comfortable. I want a gospel that's comfortable. I'd like to hear teaching that's comfortable. Comfort. In too many churches, and hopefully it's not ours, everything becomes so comfortable. You know, the cushions are great. I mean, I don't want to go back to wooden pews. And I'm really glad when it's cold we have temperature heat. And I'm glad in the summer we've got air conditioning. I'm glad for all those things. But the last thing we want to see is our message become one of comfort. You know, the truth is not comfortable for a lot of people. It's not comfortable for me some of the times. If our doctrine becomes comfortable, it becomes lifeless. If the message of the gospel becomes comfortable, it becomes nothing more than mush that makes us maybe want to do some nice things. This moral code is all it becomes. And if a church falls into that mentality of that that type of comfort, we can find ourselves in a world of hurt. And not only does it affect our church, it affects our society and affects our culture. And if you don't believe me, just think about some of the things that's facing us as a, as a nation. And you can be shocked by what you would hear, the positions that churches are taking. 
Now, at the, at the risk of knowing I'm going to step on a few toes here, but you know, we're going to vote on whether two men should be married to each other and two women should be married to each other. Why? Because the church has become mushy. We become tolerant. I get this thrown in my face. You don't think people have a right to love each other? Of course they do. That's not the issue. But let's not redefine marriage. Where's the church? We have killed over 50 million babies since Roe versus Wade. Some of us in here have had abortions. Some of the men in here have been part of that, having an abortion. It doesn't matter what our culture says. It doesn't matter what our society says. The church is supposed to speak the truth in love. There's healing for the person who's had an abortion. The hardest-hearted abortionist's heart can be changed through repentance. Can two men love each other? Sure they can. But it's not marriage according to the biblical worldview. Can two women love each other? Of course they can. Love is not what makes a homosexual homosexual. It's the sex that goes with it. The sinful. That's the problem. And the church has gotten mushy because we become accused of being intolerant. And sometimes we're even accused of being non-loving because of the positions we take. There are so many issues that we could go through. Where's the church been? And where have we as Christians been? It's not comfortable to take the positions that I just spoke here. Because I know some of you really don't like hearing that. But we need to hear the truth. And we need to understand why it's so important. When we start to to water down our doctrine, our theology, the gospel message... We're dishonoring God. In Luke 9, verse 23, we've used this verse before. It says simply this, If anyone would come after me, there's the anyone. He must deny himself, there's the everything, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, if you want to be comfortable, what the heck do you do with the cross? I mean, we take a cross and we put a little purple on it to represent his royalty, and it looks a little nicer. I've had people look at those railroad spikes and go, oh, wow, really? But we have dressed up the cross, and I'm not referring to that, but in our minds, in our culture, we do anything we can to to make the cross more comfortable. You know, what do you do if you're a fan with with a phrase like, take up your cross daily? It's bad enough that Jesus had to die on a cross, but then he goes and says, we have to have one too. And he says, daily pick up your cross. Man alive, if we would talk to a, go get a marketer, a professional marketer in here to help us to market the church so that we could draw more people and, and fill this place up and move that wall back further and tear out this wall and add on, he wouldn't tell us to promote the cross. That's not what a comforter wants to hear. That's not what a, a, a fan wants to hear about. The cross is not a sweet and gentle message no matter how we dress it up. One of the simple things, how many of you ever heard or said this phrase, well, we all have our crosses to bear? Ever heard that? Ever said that? Think of the things that we say that about or we heard people say it about. Oh, this is the third day in a row I've had to eat leftovers. We all have a cross to bear. I've only got 18 pair of shoes, but we all have a cross to bear. 
Seriously, we say things like that. We have a cross to bear about the most ridiculous things. Slight inconveniences, small pains. What does it do? It's diminishing and it's making the cross so much more comfortable in our mind that it's how many shoes we have in a closet or something else. What are we supposed to do with the cross? Most churches, a lot of churches I should say, the cross really only appears in their services on Easter. And there very briefly. I mean, some denominations don't even want the cross in their theology. They do not want blood in their theology. We remove it. From a national convention, one of the major denominations, this comment came forth. We don't want to talk about that bloody, gruesome religion. It's about love. Well, what in the world do you think the cross represents? But love. But that's where we can go if we're not careful about how we water down the cross. I want to show you a brief video here, Elodie. Go ahead and and start that. Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following Him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor. I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got or I'll send you packing. The last thing we want to do is make the gospel and Christianity so appealing and comfortable that it loses its real meaning. You know, as long as we're walking in the love of Christ, the truth doesn't hurt so much. Paul talks about how the world sees the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. And boy, isn't that the truth. The world looks at the cross and, and the gospel message and it seems like absolute foolishness. But to Christians who are being saved, we who are saved, it should represent the power of God. When you look at the cross, again, I'll ask you to just in your mind, go back to being a first century Jew. And think about for a second, what did the cross represent to a first century Jew? Well, first of all, it was the ultimate symbol of weakness and humiliation. The cross was a tool of execution. For many, then and now, the message of the gospel seemed like complete foolishness. Just think of the gospel message to an unbelieving mind 
to an unrenewed mind, a mind that's not open. The gospel message that we're all sinners and God cannot look on sin, can't have anything to do with sin, therefore He sent a Savior to die in our place. It was either Jesus or us. But Jesus came and He died in our place. He was the sacrifice. He died on that cross for my sins that I might be forgiven. And if you choose to accept that gift of salvation that He died for you, you are a Christian. You will spend eternity with God in heaven. You'd think Jesus could have came up with an easier plan. If the Lord would have said something much flashier, but a cross, it seems like foolishness. It seems a little bit more appealing to us today because in those days, if you were that first century Jew, you would think of a cross as a symbol of absolute torture. You would look at it as an instrument of nothing but death and of weakness. It's a little bit more appealing today because when we look at a cross, we've, we've changed it in our culture. And I'm not telling anybody what to do or, you know, I like a, a gold cross as much as the next person. But think of this. If, you were, if a first century Jew walked into our living room and saw an illuminated cross on the wall and then looked at me and saw a gold chain with a cross hanging around my neck and earrings dangling on my wife's ears of a cross... They'd think we're sick. Because to them, they're looking at that cross and say, an instrument of death, humiliation, weakness, and torture, and you put it on your wall and you light it with a light. You wear it around your neck. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things. Okay, Hear me clearly on that. I'm not legalistic in this area at all. But the reality is it has had an impact on the way we think about the cross. We've made it much more appealing, much more beautiful. And that's okay as long as it doesn't affect our understanding of what the cross really, really means and represents. If that gold cross or the cross on your wall reminds you of what that cross really represents in the life of a Christian, that's an awesome thing. We need those reminders on a regular basis. But to a first century Jew, it would be absolutely ridiculous. I mean... Can you imagine putting a guillotine and a little gold and putting it on your necklace and wearing it around your neck? The sad reality is, I went online and found that picture where they sell them. Seriously. And you could get them of an electric chair, too. Our culture is just a little sick. But when we look at that, most of us would say, really, a guillotine? Try to explain what that means to me. Because in my mind, that's a gruesome, bloody beheading of somebody. Yeah, can you put it on your neck? That's how the cross is to a first century Jew. It meant weakness. It meant weakness, total weakness. There was nothing you could do. You're nailed to that cross. But I think that's probably God's point. When we look at the cross, from a human perspective, it's foolish. I believe God fully intended to take something that was foolish and use it for his glory. He chose something that has absolutely no glory, none whatsoever, carries no honor whatsoever, and it is probably the least likely symbol that you could ever think of for love and life. And he says, that's what I'm going to use. That's it. I'm going to use that. He takes what the world says is foolish. He takes what the world says is demeaning and shameful, 
And he says, watch this. This is going to be so amazing. And he turns it into the power of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1 again, verses 22 through 25, Paul says this, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks or Gentiles, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles or Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Think about it for a second. Who in the world could take a cross that represents defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? Who but God could ever do that? The ultimate picture of defeat. You're nailed to a cross, publicly dying on a cross, humiliation, And at that moment, he says, now the cross is a symbol of victory. Who but God could take a cross that represents guilt and turn it into a symbol of his amazing grace? Who but God could take that that guilt that required a person to be nailed to a cross and turn it into grace? Because you know what? We all deserved to be nailed to that cross. But instead, he sent his son. It's a symbol of grace Who in the world, who else but God, could take the cross that represented condemnation and turn it into the symbol of freedom? Condemnation. One of the powerful weapons that the enemy uses against us in our minds. Condemnation. And he took the cross and says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This cross becomes that symbol of freedom that we were singing about this morning. Who else but God could take a cross that represented all that pain and all that suffering and turn it into a symbol of healing and hope? No matter what kind of pain we're going through, no matter what kind of hurt we're enduring, Jesus took care of it at the cross. Because of what transpired at the cross, we have hope. We can have healing. It doesn't matter what it is. The cross. Only God could do that. Nobody else but God could do that. Who else but God could take the cross that represents death and then turn it into a symbol of the abundant life available through Jesus Christ? Symbol of death. Can you imagine? I've thought this so many times. I've said this before here. But can you imagine... The victory that those religious Pharisees and the other haters of Jesus felt when he was being nailed to that cross. Can you imagine in the spirit realm, Satan and all his demons celebrating, dancing in the spirit realm because of the victory that they thought they had in the cross. And the whole time, God the Father is preparing to turn that symbol of death into a symbol of life the abundant life available to us in Christ. No one else could do that. But God did. And He can. He's still doing it today. He's still doing it today. What seemed like the ultimate moment of God's weakness was the ultimate moment of His strength, the cross. Here's why it matters. And this is the most important thing about everything I'm going to say this morning. 
If you only get one thing, I pray you get this. What God did for that cross, He can do for you and me. All of the transformation of what that symbol of torture and death and pain and suffering and hopelessness, all of that that He turned into hope and life and victory, He can do in our life individually. No matter where we're at, no matter what, what's transpired in our past, no matter what lies we're believing in our head, God can change it and transform it completely. There's some scriptures that they're hard for our natural mind to comprehend because they deal with the reality, as Paul says, when we're the weakest, you're exactly where God wants you to be so that you will rely on his strength. That can be a scary thought. We need to be in a place of weakness for God's strength and power to manifest in our life. Now, that does not mean we go out there and try to cause all kinds of mess and trouble and problems so we can say, there, now I'm finally at the end of my rope. We can live in that place of weakness, realizing and knowing that I am nothing without Christ, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Knowing these truths, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Notice in that scripture, it says, God chose the weak things. God didn't choose to use the cross in spite of all of its weakness and what it represented. He he chose the cross because of all the weaknesses and all that it represented. He didn't choose you and me because we were all it. We had our act together. He could hold us up and say, look at this. This is what a Christian is. No, He chose us because we got to a place in our life by His grace that when He reached out and extended us that offer of salvation, that opportunity to have our life transformed, we were at a place in our life we were saying, God, you're right. I can't do it. God, you're right. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And in our weakness, He makes us strong. It's His strength working through us. It's His grace in us, released to us. God chose the flawed and the messed up to confound the wise. And if you don't like being in the flawed and messed up, well, you were and you are. And so am I. That's what we were. And without Christ, that's what we are. But with Him, we're all these things. So he's saying, you know what? When we think we're strong, we're really weak. When we think we don't need God, get ready because you're going to discover you need Him really soon. We need to receive His strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, But He said to them, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness that the Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I delight in my weaknesses. Most of us spend all of our waking moments trying to figure out how to hide them. We don't want anybody to see our weaknesses. We don't want anybody to know we got flaws. They might reject us. They might not love us. They, don't, they aren't going to care about us. And Paul, on the flip side, says, I rejoice in my weaknesses. 
I rejoice in my weaknesses. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then God gets the glory. How much time do we spend trying to hide our weaknesses? Just think about that. Try, we put on the mask. You know, I know for a fact, because I've had a couple people share testimony even recently. You come even to church here on a Sunday morning and you put on this mask that everything's good in your world. Because when you come in, you look around and you say, everything's good in everybody else's world but mine. I've got to fake it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Most of us are, have got messes in our lives. Even now. We need to be able to say, you know what? I am weak. Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul is saying. I'm weak. There's a whole industry out there in the book market and, and positive mental attitude and be all you can be and you know this you can do it mentality and dig deep, you'll find that inner strength in you. you know, and there's some truth in all of that. I understand the way the natural mind works too, but the reality is I need help. Every day I need help. I need God's grace. I need His strength every day. I am not a good husband unless God is doing something in my life. I'm not a good dad unless God is active in my life. I'm a terrible pastor unless God is controlling my life. Is that a sign of weakness? I hope, it's, I hope it is. You know why? Because then I'm strong. Then God can get the glory. Then God can take control of my life. He can teach me how to love my wife as Christ loved the church. He can help me to handle my kids without exasperating my children and causing them to rebel. He can even, even use me to minister in the role of a pastor because of his grace and strength when I'm weak. That's what Paul's talking about. But we're so stubborn. We are so prideful and we are so filled with fear. Right, let me give you a picture. Just a picture. When we went on vacations... Pretty much the whole time the kids were growing up. They were, it didn't matter where we went, but we always did basically the same thing. We'd camp and hike. Thank God I'm getting older. <laughs> and my kids are getting older. <laughs> we'd go camping, we'd go hiking, we'd go when they're little. I remember having to stop along the interstate with a little plastic porta potty because they were that young. Not for me, for the kids. And we'd get out to go hiking. And my wife, you know, my wife only thinks one way. The steepest trail that goes the furthest. It's like she forgets you've got to come back when you go somewhere. And that's how our kids were raised. Man, we'd get out of the car and they're putting the suntan lotion on when we remembered on the kids. And, and they're all grabbing their water bottle. And if they were old enough to carry a little tiny camera. Or, or, and then they'd love to pick up a big honking hiking stick. And, and then they'd go running. And I'm like, oh, Lord. Slow down. You're going to get tired. They're just full of... They're, run, they're going hiking. They don't need my advice. They certainly don't need my help. Just get out of the way, Dad, and try and keep up. And then before long, Dad, will you carry my water bottle? Okay, put it in my backpack. Dad, will you carry this stick? I, I just throw it. No, we can't throw it, Dad. It's a really cool stick. Okay, I'll take the stick. And eventually, you know what? We'd get to this place. Dad, will you carry me? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. 
We need to be like that with our Heavenly Father. We need to put aside our pride. We can't do it on our own. We need to be like a little kid going to our Heavenly Father. God, will you carry me? Will you help me? Will you get me through this? I am weak. I am tired. But through you, I can be strong. Whether it's in your marriage, in your family relationships, your financial issues, with the lies from your past, it doesn't matter. God, Father, help me. Carry me. Pick me up. Get me through this thing. Because he promises he will. We have to admit our weaknesses. Really what I'm saying, and I, and I wouldn't know to say it this way, but I would be saying, God, will you do for me what you did to the cross? Will you do for me, transform me, this symbol of instrument of, of death, torture, shame, guilt, worthlessness, weakness? God, you changed it into all those wonderful things. Will you do it for me? This is a real test for followers. Fans don't want anything to do with this. This is easy for them. <laughs> Forget that. Vikings on our 10-game losing streak. You're going to watch the game today? Are you nuts? Forget that. I'm a fan. But for a follower, this test is very real. The question is this. Will you trust God enough to let your weaknesses become His strength? Will you trust Him enough to let your weaknesses become His strength? You know, we need to be willing to let go of our need for comfort. We need to let go of our need to be in control, if there's anybody here that's like that. We need to get rid of our, our need to, to, to glory in our own strength and our abilities, which really are from Him anyway. We need to, to get rid of our, our, our glorying in our accomplishments or the size of our paycheck or or your co-worker's approval. We need to just get rid of all of that stuff or whatever else it is in your life that keeps you from abandoning that comfortable version of the cross. And when we get to that place, then God does for us what He did for the cross. He takes defeat and He turns the defeat into victory in our life. He takes the guilt, the shame that we might have from our pasts and He releases His grace. He takes condemnation and gives us great freedom. He takes our pain and He takes our suffering and He releases healing and hope. And He takes what for many of us seems like death and gives us the abundant life in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray for each one of us here. God, that you would do for us what you did for the cross. God, that you would take our lives as we come before you and surrender every area to you. God, that we would acknowledge our weaknesses at the very least with you. That we might allow you to be our strength. God, I pray for each one of us here, even as we're here this morning, there's areas of our lives that we've tried to keep hidden. There's areas of our lives where we're afraid to give up control. God, there's areas of our lives where pride has kept us 
from being totally open, vulnerable, and transparent with you. And God, as we're in that place, we're blocking your grace, your power, your ability to release your strength in us and through us. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring us to that place where we would just raise up our hands and cry out to you and say, Lord, I need you. I can't have victory here unless it's your victory. I won't be free unless it's your freedom. Lord, I'll never be healed and I can't see any hope unless you heal me. And it's your hope that I have in you. God, I pray for each one of us as we meditate on this this week, as our life groups meet and meditate on this this week, that you show yourself mighty and meet each one of us exactly where we're at. That we might walk in that victory. Take those next steps into our destiny with you. God, that you would receive all the glory and all the honor. Lord, even now today, we we thank you again for the privilege of brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us along that trail, along that path. We thank you that we can fellowship one with another. And Lord, I pray that you would bless those times of fellowship. I pray you would bless our time of fellowship today. God, as we, we, we end this time here, we, we go to the meal. I pray, God, you would bless our time of fellowship over the food we're about to eat. Bless that food to our body's use. And bless those who are, have been working to prepare it for us. God, and I pray you would just lead and guide us today that we might be your, your hands and feet, your mouth, to to deliver this message of hope and life to those that you bring across our paths even in the next week. For your glory and honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.